If you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. So grateful to be back around His Word with you all tonight. And as we do so, uh, you'll remember that Jesus had, uh, uh, had put off for a short moment uh, going into the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles this time. His brothers, his, his half-brothers, uh, via uh, Mary and uh, Joseph's children, as you will, he was the oldest child of that home, at least the oldest of at least seven uh, but uh, now grown, these men are encouraging him. They've not yet come to believe in him as Messiah, as Savior, but they are thinking, hey, if you're who you claim to be, then you want to go and, and draw a crowd. And you're up here in Galilee in the sticks, so to speak. You need to go to the big city of Jerusalem. And so we talked through about how he had not been on anybody's timetable except the Lord himself. Uh, the Father's timetable had already been put in motion from eternity past and was being fulfilled even through the life of Jesus. But here we find that he's gone up to Jerusalem and he's begun to teach. Now look with me, if you'll pick it up there with me in chapter 7 of John. John chapter 7, and we want to start in verse 14. It says there, But when it was now the midst of the feast, that is the middle of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, probably day 4 or 5 at this point, of the seven, and then eventually they added an eighth uh, silent assembly uh, there at the end to reflect on the meaning of God's continuing work in the nation. But right now, it's in the middle of the week of festivities. Again, uh, because it was the harvest season, this was a time when people brought their annual tithes and offerings. Uh, some would estimate that as much as 10% of the annual income of a household was brought in and, in, and used in some portion uh, during this one week of festival. So it's a, a big celebration. Now look with me. It says there in, uh, in verse 14 again, Now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself, that is a person who does such a thing, seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd, again, these are the first of three different views to this growing conspiracy that we're going to talk about tonight. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? In essence, have you lost your mind? Nobody's trying to kill you. You're, you're preaching publicly. Nobody's taking you out. Verse 21 goes on. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, that is, I performed one miracle, and you all marvel. Now, he's referring to the fact that the man at the pool of Siloam, remember, he couldn't get up and get to the pool when it stirred quick enough, and everybody over the decades had gotten there before him every time that, that unique phenomena happened. And now, 
he's coming back and referring to that. Now that he's back in Jerusalem. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses. That is, it didn't start with Moses. It's from the fathers before him. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. That is, you still, even though it's a, uh, a ritual, a work, if you will, even if the eighth day of a young boy's life falls on the Sabbath, you still go ahead and perform the right thing, the right of circumcision. And then he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Now, the first crowd, that's the larger crowd, gathered for the festival, had said, "Who? have you got a demon? Who's trying to kill? Nobody, nobody's trying to take your life. But the townspeople, the Jerusalem citizens are saying, is this not the man whom they, referring to their leaders, are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Are they not holding off on taking him captive and, and putting him to death because they have begun to think that he really is who he's purported to be, who he's proclaiming to be? Is, are they beginning to say this is the Messiah? Look with me again. However, we know where this man is from. That is, we know he's from Nazareth. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. That is, the, the Messiah is just supposed to appear out of nowhere. At least that was the contemporary thinking of, of this crowd. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, that is, he wasn't, he wasn't holding back at this point. It was an open-air revival kind of atmosphere, teaching, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It was not that they weren't now willing because of these kind of statements to take him into captivity and to punish him and ultimately kill him, but they could not do it because God's sovereign time was not at hand yet. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than the, those which this man has will, thee, will he. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now the Jews, that is the leaders, this inner circle, these collaborators in this conspiracy that we'll see in a moment. The Jews said one to another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go into the dispersion, that is the region outside the Holy Land, the, where the in the, in the uh, captivity of Babylon, the people who had been in the promised land were then scattered. The ten tribes went to all parts of the known world. And then ultimately the last two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken into captivity for 70, 70 years before some of them came back. So the world is peppered with the Jewish descendants, and, he's, and they're asking this rhetorical question, is he going to hide out among the Greek-speaking people 
who have been dispersed, Jewish in descent, Jewish in ethnicity, Jewish by faith perhaps in their practice, their religion, but Gentile in their daily lives, the dispersion. Among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come? Will you pray with me once again? Father, I thank you for your word, both the written that we are looking into this evening and the living word which it reveals. We pray that that living word, active and present in this moment, in this place, in this hour, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us tonight, just as you were in that moment in the Feast of Tabernacles in the very first century. Father, may we see you for who you really are and rejoice in you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as this mounting tension continues, this conspiracy begins to take on more and more steam and moving toward that ultimate work at Calvary. We have three views. First of all, we have the crowds. They're in your notes if you're taking those uh, with the uh, note sheet tonight. We first of all see the crowds. The crowds. That is the tourist. <laughs> I know you appreciate that, brother. He wanted me to stop and make sure he got every blank, okay? So we're, we're making sure everybody repeated. The first blank is the crowds, okay? Uh, the reality is that these were people who had come in for this large feast. And so we understand their, their presence, but we need to understand the question as well. Sometimes, and let me say, you need to be very careful when, you, when you're studying Scripture to make sure that you, you formulate or you, you, you understand Scripture with Scripture. And that's important. But there are times, in addition to that first line of study and, and, and investigation and what does a passage mean, that external helps are well uh, suited to the cause. Now, what we don't typically know, and it comes from Jewish history, is that at that moment in Jewish life, there were two main schools of thinking, of, of religious study. The first was, was uh, called Shammai. Uh, it's spelt a little differently than what you and I would do. It's not the Shema or, or anything like that. But this gentleman who had been about 50 years before Christ uh, to about 30 after especially, uh, that was his season, if you will, of influence. He was a, a grand rabbi. He was a very well-learned uh, man of the Old Testament, of the Mishnah and all the Talmud and all the writings of the Jews throughout the histories. And he was what we would call a more strict conservative theologian. And, uh, and then the other was the Hillel. Now, that was a, a little more uh, open, uh, a little, well, somebody might have said, uh, some, some, not, excuse me, they have said he was a kinder, gentler kind of teacher. And the Hillel school was a little bit more uh, what we might call a little less rigid about the law. It wasn't that they weren't both interested in the Old Testament and what it meant and, and expositing the scriptures for what they were, but the application and the, the root, uh, I guess the pragmatic outworking of what the scriptures meant was different on both hands. Shammai, uh, let's, let's talk about white lies. <laughs> if... Uh, not that, not that either one would encourage them in such way, 
But the Shammai would, in, there was a question, one of these kind of rhetorical questions that went around schools of thinking at the time. Should you say always the, the bold brass truth? Or is it okay to fib, to tell a white lie? The, the prime example of the time was, is it right to tell an ugly bride she's beautiful? See the debate? <laughs> now, Hillel would say, look, every bride is beautiful on her wedding day. Go ahead and say, You're, you look beautiful today. Shammai would say, if it ain't so, don't say it. <laughs> now, how you, get it to, how you get invited to many weddings, I don't know if you take that stand. But the bottom line is that you can understand the, the difference was, was in technique, was in demeanor. And, and as we enter into this, say, this moment, this, this uh, situation where Jesus has walked into the Feast of Tabernacles and he is about to teach, you remember a lot has been building. There's been a lot of expectation. In fact, when he fed the 5,000, they wanted him right then and they were going to take him physically and make him their king. The Hillel were people who would, because of their kind of little more gracious, little more, hey, we can work with you kind of approach. They were people who did not support Rome, but they didn't want to make things worse. And so they would work in a very uh, veneer, surface level, just to make things a little easier. You know, give a little, get a little kind of thing. Shammai would say, nothing about Rome is to be incorporated into the daily life of the Jewish people. They are oppressors, they are overlords, and one day the king is going to set us free and we are not to give in to their secular pagan mindset. You understand? Does that sound familiar to y'all? Does that sound like today? That we've got people that are talking and debating issues. Something don't matter. I mean, I mean, it matters to the bride if you tell her she's ugly on her wedding day. I mean, that would be very, uh, not only hurtful, but, but very ethically and morally wrong to do. If you can't say anything good, just don't say anything, right? It, but the reality is that they were not just about these little cursory uh, side issues. They were also about the very life and how you were to live it in a world where you were the oppressed people. You say, well, what does that have to do with what Jesus is saying? Because they were trying to figure out if this is the Messiah. People are saying he might be. They had the idea that the Messiah was going to throw off Rome. How Does he line with Hillel or does he line with Shammai? Does, does he have a, a more conservative, strict, rigid kind of approach? Or, or is he more of a, you know, let's, let's find a, a middle ground. Let's do a synthesis. Let's, let's find a, a collaborative approach to how we can solve our problems. And that was... Indeed, the difficulty, because Jesus didn't fit anybody's mold. He wasn't of the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai. He was the Word itself, incarnate. He wasn't looking to what did the teacher say or what did the rabbi tell us or what were his, would his writings help us to understand. He was speaking as one who had authority. Why? Because he was the ultimate authority. He knew the Word because he was the Word. He simply was teaching out of the truth that he had incarnated when he came into this world. Now, we understand, first of all, that they were, they were having trouble because 
how, how is this man speaking in such a learned way when he's never been educated? He's not of either school. He doesn't, he doesn't have the accreditation. He doesn't have the accolades. He doesn't have the paper to say that he knows what he's talking about. But certainly, just listening to him, this man knows of what he speaks. So the mysterious meteoric rise in his development, how, how do you explain this? Who is puffing? Who is supporting? Who's putting wind in his sails? They were questioning such things. Now we go on. Look with me again in verse 15. But now it was in the mid again. Well, that's for 14. You know, these glasses need to be either wiped or renewed. I don't know. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, they were shocked by saying, and, and were saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? Now, verse 15, verse 16 follows, so Jesus answered them and said, knowing what they were debating, knowing about what they were questioning, he says, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. Not only did Jesus understand what truth was, but but he, was, he understood who he was in that moment. You see, Jesus Christ came willingly submitting himself to the will of the Father. Now, that was his will too, as well as the will of the Spirit. But he took on the form of a servant, according to Philippians chapter 2, Paul would later explain. And in doing so, he was not simply doing his own will. He was fulfilling the will of the Father as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, as the one who would be the Christ, the Redeemer. But he also was doing it as an example to you and me that our job is not to worry about what people categorize us as. If people put a label on you, that's their business. You do what God's called you to do. I do what God's called me to do. Why? Because we understand the most important thing about us as believers are we, we have been people who have been redeemed by His grace and sent for His glory and for His cause. Nothing else really matters that much. Now, family matters. Marriages matter. Raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that matters. But all of those things are ways in which we are to live what we have been sent to do. To be less of a, of a of marital spouse to your beloved is a failure of great commission mandate. To not teach your children, if there's any responsibility you and I have as individuals, it is to continually train, disciple the people that God has given our own home. You say, well, my kids are grown you are still a parent. How many of you have heard yourself say and others, you're always a parent? Once a parent, always a parent. You don't get away from that. You say, well, my kids don't live here. My kids aren't, uh, you know, I don't see them very often. Then every time is all the more a point for you to live out your calling. I have a friend in ministry. Some 20 years ago, he was telling me about the fact that after his father tragically passed away early in his life, his mother was always uh, encouraging him, not only in his scholastic and athletic pursuits, but also and primarily in his spiritual walk with Jesus. And I can remember him telling me one day, she calls me just about every day, or we talk about every day, 
And before we get off the phone, my mom always asks, how's your walk with Jesus today, son? Not how are you doing or have y'all been going to church, but how's your walk with Jesus Christ today? Boy, that's discipleship. I mean, it's not the football game, but it is a really good way to start some great conversations. What are you struggling with, son? Oh, I hear the joy in your... Well, tell me what God's been doing. There's always an opportunity to point those that God has given into our life. Yes, our family, but obviously those around us on a regular basis, whether they're friend or colleague or neighbor. God encourages us to be about His business. Why? Because that's exactly what the Son of God did in his life, even knowing the tension around him was growing. Look with me again in verse 17 and 18. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is, if anyone is willing to do the one who sent me's will, that is God, he, that's, it may be a little, well, there's a lot of pronouns here. Who is he really talking to? The people then knew exactly who he was talking about. They understood the context of the conversation, the context of the preaching that was happening, and they knew that he was saying, If you, look with me again, verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, God's will, he will know of the teaching. He will understand. The Holy Spirit of God will reveal to you what is truth if your desire is always and ever to do the will of the Father. You're going to be able to discern. That doesn't mean you don't study God's Word, memorize God's Word, apply God's Word on a regular basis, a daily basis in your life. But when you are listening to people, how many of you have ever been listening to somebody, oh, you got to listen to this guy. He's so wonderful. He's so great. And you turn on the tape or you turn, I'll tell you, that dates me. You turn on the, the podcast or you turn on the radio. And what happens? Nothing. Yeah. Well. Hmm. I, well, let me just say I'm not going to make him my number one pl- on the playlist. Why? Because there's a discernment that because your heart is to know the truth, that you're like a Berean, that you're testing the spirits, whether they agree or disagree with the text of God's Word, you are studying, you're putting everybody, no matter what their moniker says, no matter how, they can have more degrees than the thermometer behind their name, and you will say, but I'm going to test it according to God's Word. Because no man is above the accountability to the Word of God when he says, I speak for God. The reality is, as you and I look at this, not only do we see this meteoric development that they didn't know where where does he come from, how how did he get to be so learned and yet never being educated. We see also in the crowd, they're, they're questioning you know, what is this message? The message is not mine. It's, it's the one who sent me his message. I'm just the delivery man, if you will. He, he's talking about this, this motive. Is it? Look with me again in verse 17 and 18 that follows. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. Man, I just, I just get uncomfortable. Don't you? When you're listening or, you, you know, you, you, you were invited or you came... And it, it may not be a, 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 a church service or a Bible study of any kind or revival meeting, anything like that. It's just, it can be in, in any secular environment. But you know the person gets up there and they start talking, and you know it's not about the subject, it's about the speaker. They're making it clear that they're the big to-do, and you ought to know that they're the big to-do. 
But Jesus says, listen, when the message is from the one who sent us, and it's not about us, then we can, we can just deliver the message, and, and what happens as a result is in the Father's hands. It's in God's hands. It's not about me. It's, it's not about whether you like me or whether you dislike me, whether you think I have great jokes or, or whether you think, boy, he's, he's you know, he, yeah, the stuff was good, but, but it just didn't suit my cup of tea. It's not about that. It's about the Word of God. It's about what does God want you to hear And why did he send that message? Not just that messenger, but more importantly, why did God say that message into your life in that moment? Look with me again. Verse 19 goes on to say, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Do you not understand that Moses was the one who was indicating that there would be a Messiah? that there would be a need for a Savior. The fact that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments was not to give you as Jews or any religious group a ten-step process to get to heaven on your own. The, The Word of God is clear from the Old Testament all through the New Testament. The Word of God doesn't distract from the Ten Commandments and the law. The law was given, according to Galatians, as a schoolteacher, a schoolmaster. The word is pedagogue. It's the person who would bring the children and make sure they got from home to the school. And the whole Testament, the law was a pedagogue. It was a schoolmaster to show you and me to the one that we needed to meet ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Because the law shows us, if you're honest, None of us has ever been able to completely and always keep the Ten Commandments, much less the addition of the rest of the law. But not even the Decalogue is possible for us, not just ten simple things. And the Scripture tells us if we're guilty of it, the law, of breaking the law at one point, we're guilty of the whole law. And that's a whole other message in itself. But the reality is you and I are not perfect. And that's exactly what the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Writings, the Torah, and the entirety of the Old Testament was not, look how you can get to heaven on your own, but how desperately every one of us needs a Savior. And yet you try to kill me, Jesus says. He's the one that pointed to me. He's the one that indicated I would need to come. He's the one that pointed to the message that I am now being able to present to you and that I'm going to live out before you. But your desire is to put a stop to what God has said from the beginning was necessary. Look at me again. Verse 20 goes on. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? It's like, we we don't, you know, they're, they're playing coy. It's not that they're incompetent it's not that they're uninformed they have an idea this guy is not fitting the mold but he says this and they they accuse him of being either demonically possessed because he's speaking crazy at that moment or just denial you you just don't know what you're talking about (laughs) jesus never did not know i don't know if that's right miss hackett you'll have to help me later jesus didn't ever come to the point where he wasn't absolutely sure that what he was saying was true. So when he said, yet you seek to kill me, he knew exactly what he was talking about, even if they didn't 
all understand it. Look with me again. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. That is, you marvel, you were astonished, but then you got upset that I had healed that lame man, lame for decades. No one was even concerned about him. I found him unnamed, unknown, unseen, and I healed him on the Sabbath. Healed him. I didn't rob him. I didn't ignore him. I didn't count him unworthy. I didn't deny his existence or turn a blind eye to his need. I healed him on the Sabbath, and instead of rejoicing in his healing, you were angered that it happened on the Sabbath. But let me tell you, you stare and strain at the law so much that if a boy is born on a certain day, circumcision of the eighth, on the eighth day happens whether it's Sabbath or not because it's the right thing to do. Because you want to make sure that you're following the law. But to do a, a healing of an entire man's life, that causes you such discord and, and anger that you're, you're ready to kill me. Look with me again. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will, be not, will not be broken, you are, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? He says, do you not understand the, 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 the problem you've created for yourself, the disconnect that you yourselves are content to live with, yet I do something obviously benevolent, obviously a blessing to that man, and you want to rail against me. But he closes this portion of the lesson out in this way. Look with me in verse 24. Those of you that are watching, you crowds that have gathered for the feast, as well as you, <laughs> the, second, the second part of this message, second line, the culpable, the culpable, C-U-L-P-A-B-L-E. They were guilty by association. You see, the townspeople had been hearing what the leaders were plotting. I guess it's like my family. I told you last week I had an aunt named Bobby and an uncle named Shirley. In our family, it was telephone, <laughs> telegraph, or telebobby. Because she knew everything and could tell you everything if you just asked. You didn't have to ask all the questions. Just ask her one and she'd tell you the rest. Love, Bobby. She's gone to be with the Lord now. I miss her a lot because she had almost a, 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 a ironclad memory of all the families. Before there was any kind of Ancestry.com, there was Bobby. I mean, she knew everything. I, I'm not sure I traced, she traced it all back to Adam, but it was close. Whole family line. I tell you that because just like our family, every family in every society in the world... You can't do a whole lot, and you certainly can't do it on a regular basis like the Jewish leaders were doing in their plotting against Jesus before word gets out. And even people that 
weren't involved directly began to hear. And let me tell you, the Scripture says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it is sin. So it wasn't just the leaders, it was the people of Jerusalem and all who would be there ultimately at his crucifixion, and even us. We're part of this second group, this second view. Not only the crowds that had gathered for the feast, but the culpable townspeople. The culpable were just as guilty. Look with me again. Verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is not this the man whom they... Who's they? Well, you know who they are. Well, sure, but I want you to say it. It was the Jewish leaders that they were always rubbing shoulders with or, or stepping aside for because they demanded such prestige and notoriety as they walked through the streets and marketplaces and gathered at assemblies and, and celebrations and any party or dinner that was given. They wanted the high place to sit. Nobody doubted and nobody was ignorant of what was happening. Verse 26, look, he is speaking publicly. If they're trying, to, if the leaders of our nation, and they're all gathered here in the capital of Jerusalem, if they're trying to kill this man, look at him. He's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? They're beginning to be concerned. This They've been telling us all along this man is a fraud, that he's, he's an imposter, that, that he's a, a, a heretic, and, and he's a, an insurrectionist. But there he is. He's in the temple. He's, and, and, and please hear me, folks. When, when they talk about he's in the temple, he's not in the temple building. What they're referring to is the Temple Mount. It was a large space around the temple building. Yes, the temple was at one end of that space. But then it was almost like several football fields of, of stone, just a, a pavilion, flat area there on that site that people would gather. And there was, uh, again, multiple areas. There was the court of the Jews and then the court of of uh, outside that was the court of women and foreigners, Gentiles. But then on the inside, the very inner court would be the place where the priest orchestrated all the sacrifices and the altar and the, and the uh, uh, laver with the, the big sea of water and all the, all the things that were part of the outer uh, courts of the te uh, temple. And then, of course, they would go in that on special occasions and once a year into the very Holy of Holies. But Jesus was out on that grand pavilion where crowds could gather in large numbers. And he's, I mean, you can't get any more central to the nation's leadership than right on the Temple Mount. He's teaching publicly. He's, he's holding nothing back, and, and yet they're not saying anything. Look with me. However, we know where this man is from. That is, the, the, the idea of the day was that, that you wouldn't, Jesus, or excuse me, the Messiah would just appear and you wouldn't really have any 
foreshadowing. You wouldn't have any heads up that he was coming. You wouldn't know exactly where he was even from. He just appeared miraculously. Now, that's going to happen one day. It's called, it's called the rapture. And when he comes then after the rapture, when the return of Christ, when he sets up the millennial kingdom here, let me tell you, everybody's going to see where he's from, see that he's there. Whether they know him, whether they know where he's from or not, they're going to know the King of kings and Lord of lords is here. Now, all that said, these people thought that was how it was going to happen the first time. Obviously, that's not God's plan. wasn't God's plan from the beginning. But we look at this and we see again. But whenever the Christ, verse uh, 27 continues, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out <laughs> as if he could have been silent or a little quieter before. It's no doubt he is not, he's not hiding. He's not trying to be, be timid. Jesus cried out in the temple area, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. Hmm. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom, I do, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Wow. After all this discussion, Jesus making this, this confession, you know where I'm from. Ladies and gentlemen, what we need to understand in this moment is what Jesus would have you and I understand at this moment as well. In this moment of text, Jesus is clearly telling the folks that are listening, it's not a lack of information. It's not that you don't know who I am. You refuse to admit it in your hearts. You know who I am. And you know who sent me. One of the most angst-filled moments of my life is when I see that across a table, standing in a hall, maybe even on a sidewalk, and I see that individual. They've just been asking some questions. I've been answering. I've been telling them who the Jesus that's changed my life has is they, I've shown them in Scripture, the gospel. They know who it is that's knocking on their heart's door. They know who he is. But to acknowledge that, to admit that, to affirm that means a surrender of the old life. It's not a lack of information. Remember what Jesus told when he sent the 70 out? He said, listen, if you go into a place where having given testimony, people refuse to accept your testimony, you go over to the edge of town, you take your shoes off, you knock the dust off, and you go to the next town. And he says, the dust that you knocked off your shoe." will at the last day be a testimony against them. 
there are people who know exactly who Jesus is because there has been clear testimony and the Holy Spirit of God has been the one who convicts us of sin, of righteousness and judgment, has told them what that fellow said just now, what that lady just told you, what that brother just shared with you, what that mom or dad tried to tell you right then. Let me tell you, that's true. Oh, it may be, but I just, I, I don't want that in my life. You see, ladies and gentlemen, you and I often think if we, and I, I'm an apologetic junkie, okay? I love hearing how we can better explain and tell why we believe what we believe. I, I, I'm all for that, being fully prepared, being a sharp knife in the drawer that God can use, being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us, absolutely. But you have to understand, you can explain everything possible and there are some people that will look Jesus in the face through your testimony and say, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. They'll lie to their own heart's destruction. But let me tell you, you just keep loving them. You keep praying for them. You keep giving them opportunity to ask any question they want, talk about it as much as they want. But friends, when you've done your best by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the infilling of His life in yours, you have to leave it with the Lord. You be ready to, again, talk anytime you, they want. But friends, ultimately, you and I don't change lives. Only the Holy Spirit of God does that. Look with me again in this passage. We go on. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted with everything their wanter wanted <laughs> to take him and kill him. And the sovereign God of the universe would not let it happen because it was not yet time. This was the fall, Passover, the ultimate Paschal lamb was going to be sacrificed, yes, but it wasn't going to happen at the Feast of Tabernacles. It would happen ultimately on the occasion of the Passover. God's timing is always on time. In fact, let me just tell you, God's not even on time. He's above time, apart from time. He created time for us. God's not on anybody's timetable. He made time as a tool to help us understand who he was, to reveal himself to us. Friends, listen, God's not on anybody's timetable. God's on the end from the beginning. He sees what happened that first moment of creation as clearly as he sees the last person's surrender to him. The last moment when we're all taken back, not, not just the millennial kingdom, but in eternity future with him forever in glory. He sees it all. God's not crimped. He's not, he's not opening up the latest time management books. How can I get this done better? Look with me. But many in the, of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? What more do you want? I mean, these new believers, I love it. I, I love new believers. They, they're just like, well, he's God, isn't he? I mean, he's already shown what he can do. Uh, what else do you want? New believers get it. 
We get all, the more, sometimes the more we get away from that moment of, of surrender in our own lives, we, we get more complicated instead of less complicated. I mean, he's always been telling us, trust me, place your faith in me, just walk by faith. We want to complicate it. We want to go, yeah, but I need to understand this theology approach and that turn and how, you know, what method do we need to do this and what, how do we need to organize that and, and what about this piece of theology and what about this doctrine? And we're just like all up in a ball. And these new believers said, what more do you want? <laughs> I've trusted him. He's changed my life. What more can he do than what he's already done? And, and if you were looking for Messiah and this isn't him, what more could the Messiah do than this one has done? Look with me again. Scripture says in verse 32, the Pharisees, this is the third and final group. These are the collaborators, the con men. Almost started off with the tourists, the townspeople, and the Taliban, but that wasn't right. Because that's not, that's a whole different religious sect. Uh, you know, I try to help. Alliteration helps. It helps the preacher a whole lot more than it does the listeners, but it helps. But these collaborators, these were the very core of the corruption. They were the ones that had hatched the conspiracy that now the townspeople knew about and had become culpable with. But look with me. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, now here, Jesus, we're just told by, by John that the Pharisees and the priests had sent officers, sent temple guards, armed guards to seize him. And Jesus, God of very God, in that moment said, for a little while longer I'm with you. <laughs> the boys are coming after me right now, but it isn't going to happen. The guards are coming out of the temple armed to the hilt, but today is not their day. For a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now, they, these arrogant Jewish leaders said, the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? <laughs> does he think he can get away from us? <laughs> yeah, when he wants to. But when he's ready to surrender his life for the salvation of all men, he'll surrender to you, but not until. Is he not intending to go to the uh, dispersion or the diaspora, as some of your translations may read, among the Greeks and teach the Greek, is he? He's not intending to do that. What is this statement? We don't get it. What is he saying? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. There is an exacerbating tension developing here. They're, they're already sending guards that won't accomplish their purpose that day, but ultimately will arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
The townspeople are all in a huff about what does all this mean? People are being brought to Jesus Christ as surely as some are saying, I see what you're saying. I don't want to have anything to do with it in rejecting Christ. And the tourists that have come in for the feast, they're not sure what all is going on, but it certainly doesn't fit their political understanding of the day. The culture is, Jesus doesn't fit into any mold. Amen. He doesn't. But let me share with you. Once again, what does he say? You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. But look, look, look back with me in verse 33 and 34. For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. He said, I, for a little while longer I'm going to be here. Then I'm going back to where I came from, to the one who sent me. I don't know about you, but it's startling to me anytime Jesus refers to the last of his earthly ministry and all but glosses over, even to the point of almost ignoring the cross. But the cross is not ignored here. It's just set in context. I want you to take your Bibles as we close. Truly, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that is, poured out himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness, in the very form, in the very nature of humanity, of man. Being found in appearance as a man, that is, he looked and felt and was man, man of very man, God of very God at the same time. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this also, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, friends, Jesus was going. And yes, the cross was, a, was the linchpin, the turning point, the pivotal moment of human history. But he did it on the way back to the Father. It was part of the plan from the beginning. Friends, listen. Today, in this very spot, we celebrated the life of a godly man, prayed for his dear widow who's just grieved. They had not only a, a long marriage, but they had a vibrant marriage, one that he kept pointing her as the husband to the Lord. He would quote, he would write scripture verses. He would just, some days he would just write the, the reference, and other days he'd write it out, and other days he'd, he'd, pass on funny encouragements to her and always sign it in a different way and oh they were close but friends what we saw today in this place that's not the final word 
Because you see, what Paul described about Jesus humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant, he was sent as a servant. He fulfilled his responsibility, and he's gone back to the Father so that you and I can go back to the Father. So that one day, we'll pass through death, just as this gentleman did today. Just as we celebrated his life, we celebrate it because he's already gone to the Father because he knew the Lord. The reason they could not come with him or go where he was going is because they would not believe the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. If you've never, I, no matter how religious you are, no, how, no matter how many times I've gone to Sunday school and worship services, doesn't matter if I don't have a personal trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if I do, then just as he went to the Father, I will one day go to the Father. Let's pray. Father, you have made it plain that you sent your Son with purpose, with a, with a passion to reach lost humanity. Lord, thank you for giving us that opportunity to trust you. And, and Father, thank you a second time for allowing us to tell others how they too can trust the Savior who's paid the perfect and complete price for their sin and ours. Father, I pray that tonight, that tonight, not one person here in this room will go to bed, will lay a head on a pillow before they know that they know that they know that their hope is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That one day, having trusted Him, having known Him to be their Savior, having understood what He has done on our behalf, every one of us, that they've trusted that before it's everlasting too late is our prayer. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.